Hello, and welcome to Well I Know Now, the podcast in which I talk to people affected by dementia in all sorts of different ways. We chat about what they know now, what they wish they'd known earlier, and what their experience has taught them about dementia, about life, about anything and everything. I'm Pippa Kelly. My mum lived with vascular dementia for the last decade of her life. At the time, my family and I knew virtually nothing about the condition. Now, though, through my work as a dementia campaigner, I know so much more about this incurable set of diseases. Not least that the smallest things can make a huge difference. I called this podcast after a quote from author and poet Sylvia Plath, who wrote, Well, I know now a little more about how a simple thing like a snowfall can mean to a person, and dementia teaches you this, too. My guest today is a consultant geriatrician. She is also a very brilliant writer and consummate storyteller. Dr Lucy Pollock grew up in Northern Ireland, and given that both her parents were doctors, it was perhaps no surprise that she chose to train in medicine first at Cambridge and then at Bart's Hospital in London. In fact, even though her father was a geriatrician, the young Lucy wasn't sure which speciality to choose. She enjoyed them all. And it was only when a consultant said, and this is interesting, that he hoped she wouldn't be offended, but he thought she should choose geriatric medicine that she immediately realized he was right. After a short stint as a junior doctor in East London, she moved to Somerset, where, for 21 years, she specialised in the care of those who are frail and elderly. Older people, says Lucy, are interesting. They're also boring, good-humoured, bad-tempered, serene, irritable, amusing, grouchy, selfish, generous, happy-go-lucky and nervy. Older people are just all of us grown up. Of course they are, so why can't we all see that? It is in order to open up the conversation around old age, something we all reach if we're lucky enough and yet seem to shy away from, that Lucy has written her book called, without ducking or diving, the book about getting older for people who don't want to talk about it. And if anything is going to get a reluctant middle-ager to face up to the subject, it is this witty, moving, informative book. Published last year, it's received plaudits from reviewers as diverse as the British Geriatric Society to comedian Sandy Toxvig, who described it as the most important book about the second half of your life you'll ever read, and celebrity Dr Phil Hammond, and the ex-shadow chancellor Ed Balls. The Evening Standard summed it up for me. Dr Lucy Pollock, it said, is a geriatrician, and the kind of person you want to clone. For Dr Pollock, the appeal of geriatric medicine is its combination of complex science and unpredictable humanity. And while that astute consultant was obviously right in his advice, Why did he think that his suggestion might prove offensive? Lucy says that in the last quarter of a century, geriatric medicine has come into its own as more and more doctors realise how important and interesting it is, that it now attracts young medics in their droves. She loves it because it's complicated, team-based, unbelievably rewarding, and involves a lot of cake. You have to be really nosy to be a good geriatrician, she says. Towards the end of this pretty lengthy book, which reads like a dream, and after she's covered all the knotty issues from the extravagant cocktail of pills often prescribed for older people, some of which not only don't work, but worryingly are positively harmful, to preventing falls, choosing care homes, and gently suggesting to an ageing relative that they should give up driving, she looks back over her years as a geriatrician. She observes that her patients have been assets with gifts to offer of which she's been the recipient. She's been given a look, a letter, A pat on the hand, cherry liqueurs, an email that left her sitting at her desk, tears streaming, a card, a smile, a folded note that contains love as tangible as a pressed flower. Secrets. 
and lesson after lesson in courage. You can see now what I mean about her joyous writing. She brings subjects alive with characters who walk off her pages into your life. Characters like George and Margaret, Nancy and Clem, Noel and Mark, and all their individual, sometimes uplifting, sometimes heartbreaking stories. Teaches things about old age, whether it's advanced care plans, incontinence, near impossible discussions around resuscitation, or the big D, dementia, which she describes as a word primed with emotion, pinned in the thoughts of many to images of loss, fear, indignity. Before going on to explain why this perception is so wrong. Lucy Pollock is obviously very, very clever, but she's also very funny and human and self-aware. She offers her chapters on dementia with, and I quote, some hesitation and considerable respect because she hasn't experienced a diagnosis of dementia or known what it's like to live in the same house as someone with a condition day in, day out. How wonderfully refreshing is that humility? So, Dr Lucy Pollock, proud patron of Age UK Somerset, I think listeners can probably tell that I'm absolutely delighted to welcome you to Well, I Know Now. Well, Pippa, that is the most lovely introduction. I am a bit overwhelmed, actually. I'm sitting here with my cup of tea, feeling, um, well, that was just very, very kind. Thank you. And it was all very true. I mean, your book is, is wonderful. It was George Coxon, the lovely owner of two care homes in Dorset, who suggested I read it. And um, I get so many suggestions now that I'm always a bit wary, but I only had to read as I think I emailed you or something or other due because I only had to read sort of two or three pages and I thought, yep, I'd like to speak to Lucy. Um, so I'm going to start because I'm really interested to know why, particularly as your father was a geriatrician himself. And I know you told me he very sadly died when you were 13, which must have been devastating. But why, you know, given that he was a geriatrician, you hadn't thought of specialising geriatrics until that consultant suggested with, a, you know, with that rather odd choice of words, as if it was an insult. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? For quite a long time, I decided I wasn't going to do medicine at all. I was a fairly stroppy teenager and I didn't want to follow the footsteps of my parents. I felt it was, it was important to think about other ideas. And then obviously I did, thank goodness, fall into medicine. And then, as you say, I really liked other specialties. I found them very interesting. But it's odd, the sort of medical sorting hat often chooses a specialty for you almost. And I look around at my fellow geriatricians who, whilst they're all very diverse, they do share, I think, an understanding of life's imperfections. And um, uh, I think there's something about the sort of, I think it's actually the diversity of the patients is reflected in the diversity of the, of the minds of geriatricians in a way. It's a specialty that attracts people who are very interested in human beings as social entities as well as as patients and as people with a pair of kidneys or a heart or a brain no matter that the brain is a very important organ but it's not the only one and I think geriatricians seem to I think we do have a feel for the whole person in a way I mean general practice is the other great generalist Mm, um, mm. specialty and uh, so there's a big overlap. No I can see that I mean it involves every aspect of life doesn't it and older people as you say are actually which I find, you know, told to me a lot because of my interest in dementia, that old people, of course, are really, really interesting because they've lived for a heck of a long time and they've seen a lot and they've been through a lot. So, you know, they are just incredibly 
interesting. They've got good stories. They have got they've very got good very stories. good stories. Mm-hmm. And another interesting thing you said actually in your book was that I mean I'm a great one for intergenerational things and mixing up the young and the old. And you mentioned that, and you say you know you can sort of see more obviously why younger people are good for old people when they all get together. But what does a younger person get off it? But you put it in your you know inimitable sort of style. It's very good your images that. It's as if older people have sort of stepped off the roller coaster of life a bit, and so they're able to give younger people a perspective on it, which I thought was really interesting. I think that's really important, and I think it's become more important because younger people are now exposed to perfection all mm. the time, and you know, they're from their earliest education right through A levels. You've got to get the perfect grades, the perfect degree, the perfect boyfriend, the perfect job, the perfect holiday, perfect infinity pool cocktail bar, the whole caboodle body. Oh my God! Mm. And then older people are are so aware that that's not what life is about mm. and that life is full of ups and downs and I love getting that from patients I'm not sure I can say this on this podcast but I met a, a woman last year who was I slightly patronizingly said oh you know you must, you, you've obviously had a really good life and she looked at me and said Dr Pollock my first two husbands were complete shit yeah, swear on this podcast and then she said but then I got a good one and actually that's backed up by some really interesting science mm-hmm. um, so there's some lovely American science that shows that children who know a lot about their grandparents mm-hmm. tend to be happier and more resilient especially if they're aware that their grandparents have kind of weathered storms oh, um so that yes it is it's really good stuff so mm-hmm. uh, and I think you you sometimes watch that you can see it almost in families once you realize that you see oh the fact that mm-hmm. you know granddad's business went bust mm-hmm. or that they were refugees and mm-hmm. met uh, in a completely different country or whatever and yet went on to have a long life that in on reflection was one that contained great joy I think that's really important yes that's so true actually because particularly teenagers perhaps are very sort of self-absorbed aren't they and so when something happens it's why those years are good and awful everything's either amazing or it's the end of the world or it's catastrophic, <laughs> exactly yes I'm learning that five out of ten is a pretty good deal that's a lesson that yeah. I mean, you don't want to come to that lesson too fast because, of course, you want the dramas yes. when you're young. Yes, it's exactly. really important to have the highs yes. and lows. And, you know, who would like to live a sort of bland life when they're in their teens and 20s? But after a while, you do kind of realise that, you know, today may be great, but tomorrow might be a bit more challenging. Yes. Now, I want to talk to you, obviously, because of the uh, nature of my podcast, I want to, to talk about mm. dementia a bit. But actually, I was thinking, and this has come up before when I've talked to people about just about dementia, that in fact, you know, there are a lot of similarities around the, or the sort of stigma really, which is definitely lingering around dementia, but is also as, you know, hence various things we've already talked about and alluded to, is also sort of hovering around old age for some reason. It's sort of, it's various things. Again, you say this in your book, you know, why are we so reluctant? I mean, it's, you get, it's frightening, it's contentious, yeah. it's embarrassing, because it's about things mm-hmm. like incontinence and... And, you know, that that's the same really with dementia. I mean, you have a great mm. chapter on dementia and I thought its title was was imaginative and really summed it up. You know, we didn't like to say it. Just tell us a bit about, you know, your encounters with dementia and what it's taught you in keeping with, again, the theme <laughs> of, of what I know now. 
Yes, I think that phrase, we didn't like to say it, is mm. one that I've heard so often. Yeah. So often a family and indeed the patient themselves mm. know, knows fine well yeah. that this is dementia. This is not a surprise. Mm. And yet there's this perception that we shouldn't mention it, that we might cause one another upset within a family or that there's some kind of dreadful shame attached to it, which is such a sad thing to hear if, mm. if a family feel you know, I talk about Andrew's parents who who she can't explain to the neighbours. She's such a private and dignified person mm. and she doesn't like to explain to the neighbours that her husband has got dementia, mm. even though that would explain so much about oh, his behaviour. You know, the fact that he doesn't there? answer mm. the phone mm. or that mm. he puts the phone down once he picks it up because he doesn't recognise the voice on the other end or that he says something inappropriate. And and the, the isolation that creeps in yeah. when people feel like that and they don't go to church or to the pub and play yeah. skittles or whatever because they are worried that they're going to say the wrong thing or forget people's names. So we really do need to move beyond that because it is not my, I mean, my key message about dementia, it is not fair to suffer alone. This mm. is a problem for so many people Absolutely. and keeping it a secret is a complete disaster. Mm. So Yes, I think that is a recurring theme. Equally, there are some families who really are unaware of it. And mm. I love my families who say, oh, that's just mum. I had a brilliant family a little while ago whose mother clearly had pretty shocking dementia and mm. could remember very little. And they said, oh, doctor, I bet you can't remember everything. And I thought, she was. <laughs> yes, no, you're absolutely right. There's an awful lot I don't forget. I, I, I found in my diary the other day, honestly, I drive myself mad with this. I, I opened my diary and it said, let Martin know in big red writer and I'm thinking I actually haven't got a clue who Martin is my son says that's a classic act of self-sabotage that I need to grow out of but, um, and I have but I have got better you know and I find my diary has things like 10 30 exclamation yeah. mark written in it yeah oh jeepers me too help. and then you're desperately but, trying to remember what that actually means yeah what was mm. what mm. was that mm. M written on the back of my hand in mm. big marker and mm. I think oh no that's no good but actually of course sometimes families are simply being very protective mm. and they say, well, you know, Nan's in her 80s. Of course, she doesn't remember everything. Mm. But actually, they're finding it difficult to acknowledge that her problems with her memory are significantly more than simple mm. sort of age-related memory loss. And, and that can be hard. But for most people, I think you probably find this too, Pippa, mm. naming it, giving it a label and acknowledging it is usually a very good step forward. Yes, unfortunately, we, we left it too late, which was the big lesson um, and why, in a way, I do what I do now. Because looking back, which is a phrase that I hear so often as well, oh, looking back, it should have been obvious. I think there's a little bit of not wanting to see what you don't want to see as well. Certainly, I think that probably went on in our family. It's difficult to speak for my siblings, but mum had always been a bit eccentric, but she was becoming more than that. And I think probably we knew that. But and we couldn't get our parents out of their house, out of the family house. That was that was the yes. problem. But we all sort of danced around it a bit, I have to be honest. And didn't properly square up to it. That's for various different reasons, you know, and it creeps up on you slowly and but it, it does. It's not binary. No, it's, it's not, not binary. You don't have dementia one mm. day and you've got no, dementia absolutely. the next day. So absolutely. For everybody, there's a tipping point mm. where you think, actually, we need to have a think about this. And, and for everybody, that tipping point is different. So it's also not about feeling bad. 
about no. there's so much taboo and stigma about this and then people say oh I regret that we didn't mm, talk they about feel it guilt. I mean guilt just hovers we left it around. too late mm. there were, yes and there were things we should have been able to talk about and then by the time we realized it was too late, too late and so on of course that happens but equally being worried about dementia too early in mm. life has mm. its downside mm. you know fretting and fretting when mm. what you've actually got is normal aging that makes life miserable as well mm. there's no so, real right answer um, is there it's just a very no, difficult thing yes it's very personal and um yes but at the right moment it's a good diagnosis it is i mean a lot of people virtually everybody i speak to about this I think it is often, and I know, you know, you, you write a lot about driving, you know, when it when it becomes apparent that somebody's dangerous. Because it is often mm. the danger, isn't it? People say, oh, it's when they leave something on the cooker. It's when something dangerous happens that they think, right, okay, you're now at danger to yourself and others. But yes, it is, uh, oh, I think there are myriad reasons why one doesn't sort of want to go there. And then normally, though, when you have, say it was too late for my family, but the overwhelming response, people that I talked about it, are, it is relief. Partly because they now know what it is. I mean, I've had women say, I thought my husband was having an affair because he yes. was acting so strangely and he sort of, and he was writing all these funny little notes. And because people do cover it up, I think that's the other thing, isn't it? It is. And the other thing that I think that label gives you is a chance to reevaluate your, your levels of compassion. Because yeah. actually, sometimes somebody's behaviour gets worse and worse and you're so angry with them or you suspect they're having an affair, or you're frustrated, or whatever. When that behaviour is explained yeah. by a pathology, and it's not just them being stroppy or yeah. awkward or you know bad-tempered, it's actually got a pathology behind it. Suddenly, I think, and and this I have experienced. Mm. You feel that feeling of actually, I can be kinder mm. in this situation now because I know that you really don't mean to do this mm. and you do not have control over it. Mm. And because it's usually crept on for years mm. and years, there can be quite a build-up of that anger yeah, and resentment. Absolutely. I suppose as well, there is, I was just thinking, you know, there's the whole sort of lead-up to a diagnosis because that in itself can take ages. You know, it's not, it's yes, not a black and, and white so thing. All physical barriers, yes. And, of course, those have got much worse with COVID because it's more difficult to be assessed and the referrals are all slowed down. And also, of course, that isolation as well, which I think we've been talking a lot about deconditioning and people are very focused on physical deconditioning and we're seeing an awful lot of people present who've become weak and not just weak in their legs, but cardiovascularly weak as well. And so we're seeing lots of people with falls and things who would have been much stronger if they'd gone on living their normal life over the last mm. two years. And I am so aware of that. And I'm sure anybody who works with people who have dementia or who looks after somebody who has dementia must be very, very aware of that deconditioning, that mental deconditioning, just because all of our social contacts have been so drastically pruned. Oh, it was and catastrophic, wasn't it, for people with dementia mm. as well? Because, of course, they rely so much. Often all they have left virtually is the sensory and the emotions and the touch and the hug yeah. and and not yeah. to have that and to be confused there were shocking stories weren't there about people with dementia not understanding why their husband wasn't coming to see them anymore and oh mm. I, I mean they are heart-rending stories and i've i don't want to dwell on the negatives of covid mm, for mm. too long but it has been so utterly mm. miserable and people with dementia i think have suffered particularly yeah. in in hospital as well mm. and it's been incredibly sad to watch people without visitors for example mm. and and it's so depersonalizing yeah. so you know, we, we find that we're not even calling somebody by the right name mm. because somebody hasn't been able to come in with them and yeah, then there's no paperwork. Mm. And we've been calling somebody 
by their first name, which actually isn't the name that they're known by. I watch that and I just think I can hardly bear that happening. Mm. Um, so one of the things actually learning from this is how do we get that better? How do we make sure that we that we know enough about somebody with dementia when they come into hospital that means that we can make sure that their care actually is personalized so let's start with the right name mm. let's start with you know things like do you like tea or coffee mm. and uh, and how many sugars would you like in it mm. you know i finding that somebody can't remember that about themselves and then at the moment there's an awful lot of chaos in hospitals because we've still got quite a lot of covid flying around we're moving people from ward to ward we have outbreaks after outbreaks on wards and you know one bay has somebody who doesn't have any symptoms but tests positive everybody gets moved to another ward so we've got people moving multiple times and losing key possessions in those moves like hearing aids and um, dentures cheapers um and that is so wrong and yet it can be fixed but when everything is so chaotic and people are so tired and staff are tired it's it's very difficult mm. to make sure mm. that those personalizing things mm. continue to happen so mm. i think one of the ways forward is really working hard on things like dementia passports mm. making mm. sure that people come in with their families no, having provided information and making sure that people have visitors as well that's mm, mm, mm. no, so important and I, I think it's re- I'm, I can't let this pass without mentioning my which become a friend now I don't know if you've encountered Zoe Harris no I haven't what does Zoe do well her husband Jeff her late husband Jeff had dementia right in the last year or two he had to go into a care home and she pretty quickly realized that um he was uh going downhill and it was agitated and it it transpired that because he wasn't able to talk and because there wasn't this sort of care plan thing not in terms of the medication but in terms exactly of what you said you know how he likes his tea or something they were giving him his tea very milky and he he liked his tea black and this because he couldn't communicate it this was making him you know very agitated and he liked to have his chair up against a wall because he was worried he would fall and the chair wasn't up against the wall and that was also making him agitated and as much as she might say it as well to one set of carers you get different shifts of carers you get holiday carers so it was never being so she started putting little post-it notes really basic Heath Robinson sort of thing post-it notes you know Jeff likes his tea black Jeff likes this Jeff likes that he doesn't like this these are just little foibles very personal individual and then the care home sort of thought this is brilliant could you do it for somebody else and then she started to do it with a whiteboard and then it got a bit more technical and now it's online and so she's got My Care Matters um, is her community interest company and also she's doing which I was going to come and talk to you about actually because you talk in your book about all this confusion around advanced care plans living wills advanced decisions people don't dnrs people get very sort of confused which is no surprise and zoe has also now gone into my future care which is to sort of plan and help people with brilliant um, because it does all get a bit overwhelming I, I shall look her up because mm. that is exactly the sort of thing that makes a real tangible difference. And there are often small things. Quality of life. Yes. Yeah. Small things that are actually the biggest thing. Absolutely. So, um, Absolutely. yeah, the, the, the things that actually. And they're often when people have sort of gone through it. And so you just realise that doesn't make sense, you know, and that would help. And it's so small, but it sort of takes sometimes going through it to then realise what is needed. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just trying to, you know, transfer that knowledge, isn't it? But actually, think one of the things you said 
it was early in your career because it was at the Whittingdale Hospital in North London. You overheard this family and they were discussing something mm. and you realised that the knowledge was all in the wrong place. If we go back to being yes. older, actually, generally. Uh, that's, yes, that's really why I wrote the book, because the, this sort of dawning realisation that the power was in the wrong place in these conversations and that I realised that so often a family, there were questions they needed to ask and they either simply didn't know they should be asking yeah, exactly. questions or they had the questions but didn't feel they could ask them. And I just thought that's simply not fair. And that has been a thought that sort of lingered with me for, for probably about 25 years, mm, to be honest, mm. and thinking, OK, let's open this up. Let's say, what are the things that you think you're not allowed to say that you should be saying? Mm. And some of them are the really big taboo ones, mm. like is it okay to want to be dead? Mm. And is it okay to want somebody that I love to be dead, which is a really tricky one. Mm. But of course, it's okay to say that we have to move into a situation where in the right circumstances, and for the right reasons, you are absolutely allowed to say that because you are the spokesperson for that person who can't speak for themselves. Yeah. And we've got ourselves in a right old tangle. Mm, you mentioned about advanced care plans and lasting power of attorney and so on. We're in danger of making things worse rather than better by having some confusing legislation about that. I agree, that. totally, yeah. And it's so interesting. That was one of the bits that really resonated with me. I can't remember offhand the name of the person you were talking about, but it was where um, the sister said to whoever it was, who was very worried that I can't do that, I can't do that, I can't take that decision for my dad, it'd be like Tony Switch. She said, you don't have to make that decision. Yes. We yes. make that decision. Okay, yes. So importantly, uh, I think it, it is worth saying, there are medical decisions that are medical decisions. They are not mm. the family's decision. So in certain circumstances, for example, a resuscitation attempt would be a completely medically inappropriate mm. thing to do. It would be the wrong thing to do medically, and we should not be offering it. So it's not up to the family to say, oh, we want this or we want that. In another situation, it may be that it is a bit more finely balanced mm. and we're not sure whether it's a good idea to mm. offer it, in which case, again, it isn't the family's decision. It absolutely, that burden must not land on their shoulders. But what they can say is, oh, if dad were able to speak for himself, this is what he would say. Now, that's a completely different matter. Mm. It's subtle, but it's really important. And so sometimes you actually have to say, you know, I, I'm not asking you to make a decision mm. about whether dad lives or dies. This is about what his wishes would have been. Mm. And then the, the other area that I think is worth mentioning mm. is this thing about lasting power of attorney. Yeah. I'm very keen that people appoint lasting powers of attorney but it is not the be all and end all mm. and at the moment there are some people out there who think that if you don't have LPA you can't speak for somebody mm. it's really important you absolutely can mm. so I'm a little bit wary mm. I've just seen a new iteration of a treatment escalation plan that mm. says who has lasting power of attorney and it, mm. if you if you say that it makes it look as though if you haven't got that you haven't got any rights at all mm. that isn't the case mm. you absolutely if you're close to somebody and know them as a partner mm. as a sibling a child mm. whatever you absolutely have to be involved in best interest decisions when they can't, say, talk for themselves. It's really important that your view is heard. So don't let anybody out there 
think that, oh, I haven't got LPA, therefore I haven't got any rights at all, because that's a complete nonsense. Mm. And I think this relationship between the medical profession and the patient's representative, if they've got to that stage where they can no longer communicate their wishes, it's so Mm. fraught and it's so nuanced, isn't it? Because an example I had, my mum had dementia, she was right towards the end, she hadn't really spoken for I mean years like two years and was lying in her care home bed and and as often is the case she would often get an infection and I would get the call from the care home and you know you'd rush over and whatever and twice I'd be caught you know shopping whatever my daughter was young or whatever I was doing and I said right you need Mm. to come and then they said do you want to speak to the doctor I'd speak to the doctor and we knew we had this sort of care plan and I'd set it all up with the manager of the nursing home and we didn't want mum to be in any distress or any pain but we didn't want her life to be prolonged her quality of life by now it really she was right at that end stage but two times when that occurred with doctors and of course you're going about this is the other thing about dementia you know it doesn't exist in a vacuum you're going about your busy life doing things and then suddenly it's like this bolt comes into you know whatever whatever it is you're doing in order to ease that we'd got this forward thinking plan so I said yes I know exactly what it is to the two doctors this was spaced apart to those two but then they pushed back on me and sort of made me feel so and they said well if we if she doesn't go into hospital now and we can't put her on a drip because she can't do that in the care home that basically you're starving her and because as you sort of said about why people can't say things because it was a doctor I mean I'm quite a feisty person but because it's the medical profession and you bow to their knowledge I was thinking I knew I knew my brother my sister my dad by then had died but you know Mm -hmm. I knew what we'd all agreed and I knew we didn't want mum to be hauled off in a hoist in an ambulance Mm -hmm. to a hospital where she might or might not die in hospital rather than her bed the third of course mum being mum she rallied and it wasn't the time anyway but the third time that occurred and I can remember this one because I was in Waitrose shopping and I got the call and I said yeah know exactly what it is don't want her to be in any distress don't want her to be in pain but yeah you know she's really no quality for her. and this time the doctor said I completely agree and I remember standing in this queue at Waitrose and feeling mm. my shoulders just go down and yeah. this immense burden of all those emotions guilt <laughs> sadness grief sort of fall yeah. away slightly because the professional was you know i i think it's really hard this one and it's so unfair when that happens because as you say suddenly somebody's saying well that's not a good plan and they're basically saying you're not acting in your mm. parents well, best you're being cruel yeah that's well exactly or doing something illegal, illegal mm. immoral unethical against gmc guidance etc and it is a really difficult one to challenge and i think that we need lots of training of doctors and nurses in this. So there are. It, it is not just the lay population who don't know what the rules are. There are quite a lot of doctors who really don't know what the rules are. And they um, can get very anxious about the assumption in favour of prolongation of life, which is a very good assumption mm. and is the right place to start. Mm. Of course, that's where mm. we act from. But it's not always the right thing to do. Mm. And actually, some doctors need reminding that the GMC guidance actually is very clear. And it says you know, that is not an absolute and that you have to consider the consequences for the patients 
all their wishes mm. if these are known or can be found out mm. well how are you going to find them out in somebody who's mm. got significant dementia you have got to talk to the family they've mm. known them for years then I think there is a little issue that sometimes creeps in and my medical students mention they say well how do you know the family are actually on side mm-hmm. you know? uh, aren't they just after the house mm-hmm. or the money yes. or whatever and actually when we're talking about you know a thousand pounds a week worth of care home mm-hmm. fee it's not a question you can't ask. Yes, you, you absolutely. do need to look mm. at that. But actually, the general rule is, of course, you assume positive intent. Most people in families are motivated by love and knowledge of that person, and they absolutely need to be listened to. Mm. So mm. I'm so sorry that you went through that experience, Pippa, because that is miserable. Well, I, 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 but I did have, and in fact, I meant to ask you before. Before we started this, I, could say, so I had the most amazing, wonderful geriatric palliative consultant for my father, um, mm. who didn't have dementia, but because of a series of strokes, couldn't speak, was fed by Peg. The whole thing was Ooh. atrocious. It was going on in stereo. Yeah. And she was wonderful. And I was so taken in your book when you talk about this need to talk about getting older and the thing that lies just the other side of getting older kind of thing, which is obviously death if you're lucky enough to live older, and why we don't Mm. go there and the conversations that really, really need to be had. And I just kept thinking because, and it's done through, no, I love my dad, you know, to death. I just absolutely loved him, but Mm. he didn't talk about it. And he was in a bit of denial, really, I think, about everything. And then it got beyond it. Then... I so remember this wonderful consultant. She was called, I will name her, I don't know if it's, is it ethically okay? If I'm... Completely fine, I think she, she deserves to be made. Yes, Dr Patricia Braden. And she was so compassionate and she'd been trying to talk to Dad, but he couldn't really speak, but she was trying to get out of him what exactly he wanted. And then she came back into the room and she said to me, you know, has your father found it... I don't think that it's just that he can't talk. I'm not sure he wants to front up to this. And has mm. he been somebody who's sort of shied away from difficult decisions a bit? And I suddenly thought, hmm. <laughs> he was the educated yeah. one. Mum was the uneducated one. But she sort of wore the trousers in the relationship. And I thought, hmm. And then I looked at her and I said, yes. and what happens if he hasn't, if he doesn't? And, and she sort of looked at me with such compassion. And she said, well, you'll have to... You know, and it was, and then she helped me. You know, the two of us, we 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 sort of did it because I did know probably what. And anyway, things unrolled, and other things happen, and that. But this enormous weight that families take, I think that was really what struck me about your book: the way you are so beautifully extending this professional hand to them, but in such an accessible way with your wonderful writing, just to say. You're not alone. And you can say these things. You can say, as I've said publicly about, you know, I loved my dad. And because I love my dad, I mean, I didn't want him to die, but I did want him to die. Yeah, yeah. So I I think those things are absolutely vital that one's able to have a conversation and then also recognise and respect people who absolutely are not going to have that conversation and they're never going to talk about it mm. uh, that's that's kind of fine too you know they it might cause us all a bit of a headache and lots of soul searching and how much pressure do you put on somebody but actually we work around people who don't want to talk about it and you extrapolate from things they've done or said in other settings yes, of to course. try and work out what the best thing is the other thing of course is 
notice that this isn't a recurring theme the whole time for the whole of the latter part of your life. (laughs) There's a lovely phrase about advanced care planning, which is plan it and park it. And I love that. You know, Mm. just have Mm. the conversation. Mm. Once you've done that, Mm. you know, if you're lucky, you've written it down. Doesn't actually matter if you haven't. Just a conversation makes a huge difference. Mm. Then at that point, let's move on. Let's move on to fish and chips on the beach, to family gatherings, to who's doing what and uh, you know all the gossip and the ups and downs of life and forget about all the dodgy bit at the end because you've done your planning about that you've talked about it and you can now shut the door on that and leave it alone until you actually need to open the door um you mentioned at the beginning talking about the fact that dementia whilst it's a horrible cruel disease people can live very happy and rewarding Mm, lives mm, mm. with dementia and i love that that's a recurrent theme of your podcasts as well pippa Mm. Well, I mean, I'm I'm a huge fan of Wendy Mitchell, yes. you know, the best-selling author who lives with dementia, yes. because she she also has a fantastic way with words. She's very clever. I loved her piece about um, when she she broke her wrist, yes. and it was about how people said you're not going to need that hand. <laughs> yeah. Hang on a moment. Yeah. Yes, I do. I mean, she was she is absolutely tremendous, and sort of telling it as it is. Yes, it's, that's right. It's very impressive stuff. And mm. and even people, I mean, Wendy's been very unlucky in getting dementia at really quite a young age, yeah. but even people in older age and with considerable frailty who also have dementia, it's this question about judging other people's quality of life from the yeah. outside and getting that wrong and realising that actually, again, these things aren't binary. We don't suddenly reach a stage where you can say, well, you know, life's not worth living. There are big things and you modify your expectations yeah. as you get older and different things become interesting. And as you say, small things become big things. The number of relationships you have naturally falls away. Friends die or you're not able to go and see them anymore. And actually, Gawande writes so beautifully yeah, about how people's yeah. sort of circle of mm. contacts mm. falls off in older age. Mm. And that that's not necessarily a bad thing yeah, because that, each yeah. of those relationships then becomes more important. Yeah. So one doesn't want to sound like a complete Pollyanna sort of skipping through the, mm. the fields mm. talking mm. about dementia mm. because it mm. is so difficult. Yeah. And yet there are beautiful things that happen there are relationships that are strengthened yes there are appreciations and stories that pop out that actually one wouldn't have had without that illness so there are oh it's the same as anything in life isn't it yes there are it's multifaceted but you do get some some extraordinary silver linings and in last week's podcast I was talking to a consultancy called plan with care and I knew one of the people who's a well-being consultant there which is why you know I was very keen to talk to them and they have creative companions who will go and sit well not just sit but be with people to venture and they were both saying Alice and Carrie, who's the creative companion, what the people with dementia teach them, and it often is this living in the moment, being in the moment, something Mm -hmm. we never, ever do really because our lives are so busy. And just the way that you might do something that's seemingly very small, in this case, spraying some lavender around a room that actually brought somebody, virtually brought them to life. Uh, because all of a yes. sudden they were back in their childhood, picking the lavender, the bees were swarming around, and this whole 
you know, conversation around her granny's garden or whatever it was came about or yeah. or you know yeah. and also to go back to Wendy Mitchell which I do tend to because she's a real hero of mine because she doesn't do just the Pollyanna she also tells it as it is I think she's great the way she does it all in the round and she has become an extremely good photographer I mean really good oh yeah I mean exceptionally actually, you know, I have some I've seen some on mm. Twitter mm. actually she mm. is good you're no, absolutely abs- right she takes some she does pictures. and people have I think her daughter or something given her been you know, really good lenses and things so but I think I can't remember if it's Wendy who told me this but people with dementia you know they do notice things because they go a bit slower uh, yeah. Life has slowed down. They notice the caterpillar on the leaf. Or... <laughs> no, it's like spending. I mean, it, it isn't like spending time with a toddler. But there is yeah. on the upside yeah. that fact that you're going to walk somewhere very slowly. You're going to take time to look yeah. around you. You're going to be interested in a ladybird or whatever it is, yeah. and and you do need to slow down. And that can apply to meal times and to doing a project together, or to simply sitting and and listening to some slightly inaccurate stories stories about the past you know that's I mean that's one of the things I think families can find frustrating is that somebody may be very happy to talk about about the past but you're also aware that it's being uh, relayed in a way that doesn't actually quite stand up to scrutiny when you when you're worried about the accuracy of whose wedding it was that that happened at at but then that comes with a bit of learning about thinking, does it matter? Yeah, it doesn't matter. Exactly. Does it matter that, exactly. you know, let's, let's let that story just be a good story. Absolutely. And I didn't want to let you go, actually, because I know this is, um, you're very passionate about this, because it's, again, in a way, it's something that's so, small things can make a big difference here. And this is falls in older people and people with dementia, actually. Right? Yeah. Uh, so, and that's another thing yeah. you say, actually, that a lot of the time, so making things better for, for older people is is making things better for all of us. And we say that in the sort of dementia community, you know, often if you make something better mm. for a person with dementia, you kind of make it better for all of us. So just mm. tell us about falls and the, the important things around them, the issues around Ooh. them. Okay, so falls are a really big issue for, for older people. About a third of people over 65 will fall in any one year. And the problem obviously is not just the injury, but also or the knock-on effects in terms of loss of confidence mm. and fear of falling. Mm. And for a lot of people, fear of falling is a very realistic thing. And it's a very accurate, you know, you should be afraid that you're going to fall again because you are. And then the other thing about them is that actually then also, in many people, not inevitable. So we can intervene. So we know that if we do a sensible medical examination, really listen to the story about why that person fell over, tease that out, look at their medications, examine them, make sure that the treatable things are treated and that their house is sensible, hasn't got loose rugs and, you know, silly things like putting, I love OTs, putting a little cage on the back of a door so that you don't have to pick up the the letters from the ground. You know, it's just sensible little things like that. And we know that if you do all of those things, because you don't know which one is going to make the difference for each individual, you will reduce the risk of falls by about 30%, which is, if you think about it, it's a huge reduction. Okay, you're not going to stop people falling. That's a big reduction. But people with... It is a huge reduction. It's much better than you get out of most tablets. You know, taking aspirin to prevent a heart attack, you're not looking at a 30% reduction. So... It is a, an important area. So it's knowing when to make a fuss. I think it's that's the other thing that I, one of the reasons I like writing about falls is it absolutely is that classic thing of is this normal mm. or is this common but not normal? Mm. And falling over is very common, mm. but it is not normal. Mm. You are allowed to seek help. Mm. And then for people who have dementia, there are lots of reasons why somebody with dementia might fall over. 
which can include infections and medications and loose rugs and all the things that people without dementia fall over because of. But actually, importantly, of course, dementia itself affects your balance. It's not all about memory. Later on with dementia, it really does affect how how your brain coordinates Mm. movement and your speed of your reflexes and so on. And so and then also your judgment. So you forget Mm. you may forget that you need to walk with a frame, you know, and, uh, you know, so often you go into a care home and and they'll say, oh, Harry just won't use his frame. It's right there. Mm. He won't use it. And then you can do those lovely projects where you decorate it. You make it look like Harry's frame, not like Ellen's frame. That's a very good idea. Again, COVID screwed up so many things. For example, decorating frames because you couldn't and wipe them down with a a cloth. You know, so maddening. So we need to move on from that. But for families, I think what I would say on behalf of care homes, because they struggle so much sometimes with families who get terribly angry about falls. And to be honest, it happens in hospital as well. And I've had so many families who are furious that somebody fell over while they were in hospital. But actually, there are always going to be people who will fall. The only way you can stop somebody from falling sometimes is by keeping them sat in a chair. And that's not right either. So it is about that accepting balancing risk and allowing somebody to keep moving and supporting them when they do and being prepared to accept the fact that they may well fall over and that may be a calamitous fall as well it may end up with you know something terrible happening but at the same time sometimes we do have to accept that risk and that's another theme I think that runs through the book is, is how much risk are you prepared? No, absolutely. So I think about George accept. actually, because you say, don't you? I mean, and mm. I love George when I, I he was on my podcast. And uh, there's a phrase, isn't there, that he uses around risks. He says that it's, I'm risk aware, not risk averse. And he does yes. fun, so fun guarding, doesn't his, he? Not safeguarding. Fun guarding <laughs> is such a fantastic <laughs> phrase. Fun guarding and Trisha Elliott, who's another geriatrician, is fantastic up in Edinburgh. Talk about this. Fun guarding is really important. You know, telling somebody they mustn't do this and they mustn't do that, and making them eat food that they don't like mm. because it's nutritious mm. and things like that. You just think, oh, oh for goodness' sake, yeah. let's have a bit of fun. fun. You know, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, and then I love my colleague Peter who talks about helicopter parenting that directed up a generation mm. so you know families who worry and worry oh, and feel yes. mm. they have to protect their older parents because they're making unwise decisions mm. and mm. you know my friend whose father's constantly lighting terrifying bonfires mm. in the garden mm. and you know mm. uh, and causing mayhem but actually that's his life those are his decisions he wants to take those risks and provided nobody else is going to get incinerated then actually you do need to allow him to 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 do those things because that means he's going to come in from the garden radiantly happy covered in in sooty smuts and he's had a really good day yes life is for living isn't it I think one other thing while we're on the subject of, of, of risks is the driving, because, of course, that does entail other people's safety. Yeah. And that is extremely, I know, with particularly with dementia, it can be a really thorny subject and very difficult to bring up and broach. And um, and there are yeah. ways, there are little sort of ruses one can use, saying the car's gone off to the garage and then the car just sort of never really <laughs> reappears yeah. or something. But I thought what you said that was very interesting was this DVLA assessment, which I must admit, when I heard about it, I didn't know either. Can you just talk a bit about that? Well, we have to be careful because obviously, like so many things, it's been completely derailed by COVID. Oh, gosh, and I right. think it was always fairly geographically patchy. But when it works, it's fantastic. There's a very good charity that I've for the moment forgotten the name of but I will send it to you mm. and they help organize DVLA assessments mm. and 
I have found for some, I, I talk about my friend Laura, whose mother was an absolute liability on the road and really did not have any insight into mm, the fact mm. that, that she was a liability. So she wasn't trying to be dangerous, mm, mm. but and she would have been very horrified if she'd realised how dangerous course, yes. she was, but didn't have the insight. And the family had tried and tried to persuade her. And she didn't have a diagnosis of dementia. She had mild cognitive impairment, mm. which is not a bar to driving. Mm, mm. But in the end, organising a DVLA assessment, you have to go to the centre and then use their car, which funnily enough has dual controls. They are very sensible. <laughs> Before you even get in the car, they do a very good paper and pen test of memory and obviously of vision as well, mm. because people often lose substantial vision without being aware yes. of that. And if you pass those bits, they then take you out on the road and they do a really fair assessment. And right. so it depersonalizes it. It takes the family yeah. out of the loop completely. Yeah. It's nothing to do with whether your family think that you're a good driver or not. Mm. And they will say, yes, you're allowed to continue driving or no, you're not, which is fabulous. And to be honest, for some people with dementia, who are in the earlier stages or have got some of the forms of dementia that don't particularly affect judgment like that, they do very good assessments for those people as well, which allows them to stay on the road. So it's actually just as much about being allowed to continue driving as about stopping. Yes, of course. Absolutely. To look at it the other way around. Yeah. Might find that they're fine. Yes, exactly. And for some people who are very anxious about driving and are feeling very responsible and think, you know, am I going to cause somebody else harm? Actually, very nice to do a test and be told, actually, do you know, you're fine. Keep going. We can have another look in a year's time. So for some people who need the confidence in order to maintain their independence, that's not a bad idea either. No, quite. So um, that it, it, where that's available, I would strongly mm, recommend mm, yeah, it. I thought that was... Obviously, it's not available everywhere. Right. And the key is, if you have a formal diagnosis of dementia, the DBLA have to know about it. If you don't have a diagnosis and don't have dementia, but just have poor insight, that's an issue where I'm afraid it does come down to the family. It's not the GP who is allowed to tell you to get off the road. So unless, you know, there are certain conditions like epilepsy or after a stroke or after a heart attack, the DVLA rules are very clear right. and the doctor just delivers the rules and says, right, this is what it says that you've had, you've got a diagnosis of epilepsy, you are absolutely not allowed to drive for X many months. And they can show you the page in that it's a thing called um, medical rules for driving or medical guidance mm -hmm. for driving. And it's very, very literally black right. and white. That's helpful. But if you haven't got one of those and you're simply erratic and stubborn and you've driven for 70 years and you're not going to stop now despite the fact your car is covered in dents then I'm afraid it does come down to a family having to take a stand yeah 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 just one last thing because I think a lot of people will really sort of identify with this because you also have a bit of a bee in your bonnet about language as do a lot of people when it comes to to dementia so well, for a start, which I think a lot of people I know get quite annoyed about the elderly, this sort of amorphous blob, like we all sort of move around together. Yeah. But also yeah. I thought it was quite interesting when you talked about the phrase fiercely independent, which caused... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it's a, that's one of those medical bingo phrases. You cannot say independent without saying fiercely in front of it, especially if you're talking about tiny older women. Women, you know, I know, that I is, that. that's bound yeah. to be a woman, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. every time, mm -hmm. yes. Partly because are women fiercer and are they more independent? I think there is a grain of truth in it. Yeah, I, I think there is. Say. Yeah, hence, hence sort of my mum, actually, in our family was definitely mm. the fiercely independent one. They were just fierce. Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
And I love the little anecdote about you. I mean, I love your stories. I think they're brilliant. But your aunt, who, you know, this is when older people get patronised and somebody sort of patted her on the arm or something and said, oh, I think she was a bit upset. And then, you know, I remember... Oh, being... she said, yes, I wasn't upset. I was bloody furious. Yes, but <laughs> incandescent. Yes, incandescent. That's exactly her phrase. Yeah. It's a so, wonderful uh, word. Yeah. Such a great yeah. word, incandescent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 no, that was very funny. She'd been to some outpatient appointment where they'd got completely the wrong day, and then they were rather rude to yeah. her about the fact that she had arrived yeah. on a day when they weren't expecting her. And the letter said, you know, she was right, they yeah. were wrong, and they yeah. said, We're sorry, you're upset. Oh, yeah. she was serious. Yeah. yeah, incandescent indeed. And and you would know it with that aunt yeah, if you were exactly. incandescent for exactly. sure. Exactly. Well, I'm going to Glowing. let you go now. I have one final, final, final question. And this is that eagle-eyed, in your acknowledgements, because I wanted to see, and that was a very, very, very long list of acknowledgements, which is typical of you, I, I suspect. But, so, who is the very small, determined woman in a red coat with gold oh. buttons whose stories are not told? Okay, I will tell you, because actually I spoke about her to some very good pharmacists the other day. She is a woman from whom I learned a lot about prescribing. She was a lady in North London when I was a trainee mm. and she would not take the tablet that I had prescribed for her because she said it made her feel awful and she used the phrase blur. And I said, well, you know, blur is not in the BNF listed <laughs> as a side effect. And she said, I'm not taking it. And, and she and I had quite a ding-dong mm. about this. Mm. It was a fairly new tablet for blood pressure mm. and I was determined to get her blood pressure down and she was not having it. Mm. And I saw several times in and out in that patients and she was absolutely magnificent and in the end I looked it up in the BNF and there was a list of side effects one of which was the word asthenia and I didn't know what that was so I thought she can't possibly have that because I've never heard of it but I took myself off to the library this was before the days of Google mm. and I went to the dictionary and I looked it up and asthenia is the medical phrase for weakness. Mm. And it is still used in the BNF. It is the side effect of over 150 drugs in the BNF. And almost no doctor knows what it means because it isn't actually used in medical, everyday medical. So we've got any amount of jargon that we use all the time. We mm. use, you know, doctors know what dysdiadocokinesis is, but we don't know what asthenia is. And it's a word that is only used by drug companies. And we can draw our own conclusions from, from that. Mm, and mm, mm. Um, it's really important. So she was also, the fact is, even if it wasn't a side effect of that drug, it was for her. Yeah. So that was the other thing I learned from her. If your patient tells you that the drug makes yeah, them feel them. X or Y, it does. Mm. Don't care whether mm. it's listed in the BNF. Mm. It does. Listen to them. Mm. So she was an absolute cracker and I've never forgotten her. Oh, I'm so glad I asked you that. That's a great story to illustrate that. And then we could go, but we won't because we've been talking for long enough. It's quite late now. But, you know, you, the whole passage about medication was absolutely mind-boggling as well. But maybe you'll have to come back and we'll have to do another one or something. We'll do that again, Pippa. How lovely that conversation was. Thank you so much. No, thank you very much. Thank you for giving up your time. That was really great. Thank you. Thank you very much, Pippa. You take care. It was one of my previous guests, George Coxon, who strongly suggested that I should talk to Dr Lucy Pollock. To be honest, and very wonderfully, I receive lots of requests for people to come onto my podcast, and I'm always quite careful in my responses until I've researched them. In this case, Lucy sent me her book, I read two pages and direct messaged her on Twitter. There was no doubt whatsoever that I wanted her on. 
and she didn't disappoint. Lucy combines that brilliant combination of professionalism and compassion, of warmth and skill, great knowledge and understanding, gritty realism and wit. I loved our chat. I've learned in my six decades on our planet that people who are curious are interesting. People who are clever tend to be curious, and the best doctors tend to look at life in the round, treating not just symptoms, but the unique, complex person standing in front of them or lying in bed. And because they're curious, they never stop learning. How utterly fabulous was Lucy's story about the determined little woman in the red jacket with the gold buttons and the invaluable lesson to listen to your patients that Lucy learned from her so early in her career. The BNF to which Lucy referred, by the way, is the pharmaceutical reference book. So much of what Dr Pollock said took me back to the 10 difficult years when I was supporting my mum and dad. If only we as a family had planned it and parked it, to coin Lucy's phrase. Instead, we slammed into impossible decision after impossible decision. And of dementia, instead of shame, she says, we must harness the positive emotional fuels of change, compassion, a sense of angry injustice, pragmatic determination. Well, I suppose that's just about what I did after Mum died. As did Zoe Harris after her husband Jeff died. It was Zoe who created My Care Matters and My Future Care Handbook, to which I referred. They can be found at mycarematters.org and myfuturecare.org. And Lucy mentioned the charity that provides driving assessments. It's called Driving Mobility and can be found at drivingmobility.org.uk. And finally, I can't recommend Lucy's book highly enough. It's beautifully written, insightful, informative, necessary. It's called The Book About Getting Older for People Who Don't Want to Talk About It. And it's published by Penguin. And finally, if you've enjoyed listening today, I would be very, very grateful if you would rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform or channel you're listening to it on, as this will help spread the word about the podcast, and then together perhaps we can further diminish the stigma, increase the knowledge, and quash the myths surrounding dementia.